Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Most of you already know me. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And here at Crosswinds, you always hear of us talking about the fact that we are trying to reach people with Jesus Christ. And at Crosswinds, we do that in a variety of ways. We don't just do that here in the church, in the way we do our ministries, but a number of people are involved in other things outside of the church as they try to tell more people and reach them with Jesus. And I want to mention one of those ways. Uh, we've talked about this in the past around Christmas time, and that's uh, Atlas Ministries. We have three people I know of on the Spirit Lake campus that are involved in Atlas, and Atlas is a ministry for those who are literally at the end of their rope. Uh, they don't have places to live. They don't have jobs. They're in desperate need of counseling. But most of all, they need to hear about Jesus Christ. And so three people in our church are involved in that way. That's one of the ways that we're all about reaching people with Jesus, not just in our walls, but also outside of our walls by being involved in the community. Now, this morning we're going to begin a, a new series. This series is in 2 Samuel. Uh, we finished our series in 1 Samuel just before Christmas, and a number of you talked about how much you liked that and how you're looking forward to getting back into uh, the Samuel books. So this will be exciting to get into 2 Samuel this morning. And I'd like to begin, before we even get into the text, by just giving you a little brief introduction to what we're going to cover this morning. Maybe you've heard the phrase, crime doesn't pay. Anybody heard that one? Yeah. Now, is that true? I'm not too sure if it's really true. Because if crime didn't pay, why would so many people be doing it? Why would you need a lock in your house? Why would you need a lock in your car? Why would your cell phone be all about now safety, security, face ID, fingerprint ID? Why would you need all that if crime didn't pay? If crime didn't pay, why would you have so many levels of security in your local bank? If crime didn't pay, why would we constantly be getting those telemarketing calls from Nigeria at the dinner hour? Any, yeah, I got an amen back there. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think maybe a, a more fair statement is uh, crime doesn't always pay. But in this world, where there's many... <laughs> should we call it uh, difficult or evil leaders or non-godly people, crime sometimes does pay. Now this morning as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to find out there's a time when crime never pays. When is it? You'll discover it this morning. First and Second Samuel are actually sort of connected together. You, you need to know that. Um, first and Second Samuel were originally one book, and this is very important to know. The, for the first thousand years, when First and Second Samuel were as one book in Hebrew, it was kept together that way. It was when it was translated into Greek about a thousand years after it was originally written. That's when, because of the size of the book, it was divided into First Samuel and Second Samuel just to sort of make it more manageable in that particular translation. So the division between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is completely artificial. That's important for you to know this morning. It's just a continuous story that goes along. Now, um, 
1 Samuel, as we've seen, is the story about God giving his people a king. God's people wanted a king, and they wanted a king just like the other nations around them had a king. And so God, in 1 Samuel, gave them a king of the type that the people wanted. They wanted a good-looking king, somebody who was visually impressive. And so God gave them King Saul, the first king. Saul was visually impressive. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was incredibly good-looking. And the people said, well, this is the kind of king we wanted. But if you remember, if you were there in 1 Samuel, that may be the king they wanted, but it wasn't the king they needed. Because not long after Saul started reigning, he may look good on the outside, but it was very apparent that he had some serious character flaws on the inside. His heart, you'll remember, was not fully committed to God. In fact, early in his reign, he refused to destroy the Amalekites, which God had commanded him to do. And as a result of that, God rejected him as king. And then as we saw in 1 Samuel, God anointed another king. This king was known as a king after God's own heart, the kind of qualities that God would choose. And that man's name was David. And if you were with us in 1 Samuel, you know that half of the book of 1 Samuel is really this awkward tension where um, Saul has been rejected as king, but he was still reigning in office. David had been anointed as king, uh, but he was beginning in obscurity, and God is slowly raising him up. Now, at first, Saul actually liked David because he was an amazing warrior with lots of natural gifts that way. But then Saul quickly became jealous of David, you'll remember. In fact, he grew to hate David because it was obvious that God was with him. It was obvious to Saul that David was the king who was going to ultimately replace him. And then as we saw in 1 Samuel, Saul went out of his way over a dozen times to try and kill David. But God continually protected him. Now while Saul was trying to kill David, you also may remember, David never returned that way. David never went out of his way to kill Saul. David chose to respect Saul and his position of leadership that God had given him. David was not going to remove God's anointed king. That was something only God had the right to do. God installed him into office, and God would be the one who had to take him out of office. But David did grow weary of running for his life constantly and for years. And finally, he defected, you'll remember, towards the end of 1 Samuel, defected to the Philistines and hid among the enemy there. And the Philistines grew to like him. In fact, the Philistines planned to have David originally join them in a battle against King Saul and Israel as we got to the end of 1 Samuel. And that's not really what David wanted to do, to find himself fighting against his own people, fighting, find himself fighting against God's king. And God in his providence at the end, he made it possible that uh, David was rejected as king at the very, or excuse me, David was rejected in the fight and sent away. So he didn't have to fight against King Saul and the Israelites. David went 100 miles south to Ziklag, which was his um, city that he was with his men there. 100 miles apart from Saul. Saul and the Philistines fought at Mount Gilboa and when 1 Samuel closed, we found that Saul and the Israelites lost terribly. Saul died. Three of his sons 
died defending him to the death. It was a tragic end. Meanwhile, 100 miles south, David had come to his hometown of Ziklag to find that the Amalekites, remember the people that Saul was originally supposed to destroy, but he refused to do? Amalekite raiders had actually attacked his city, destroyed the city, and taken away their, their wives and their children. David hunted them down, destroyed most of them, and brought them all back. And that is where 1 Samuel drew to an end. David doesn't know what happened up north. David doesn't know what happened to King Saul. 2 Samuel picks up, and it's going to be news from the front of the battle. So let's begin with that. News from the battle. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now remember, there's a hundred mile difference between Mount Gilboa in the north, where Saul fought and lost to the Philistines, and Ziklag in the south. It's essentially a three days journey to travel between them. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, and his clothes were torn and dirt on his face. And he came to David, and he fell on the ground, and he paid homage. This doesn't look good. His clothes were torn up. He has dirt all over him. He looks like he, it was a big mess where he came from. Now, we already know how the battle ended for Saul. Let me remind you what, what happened in 1 Samuel 31. We know that the archers had found Saul. The Philistines had focused on Saul. And Saul was badly wounded from the archers. Saul um, turned to his armor bearer, really realized how, that he was dying and we were, they were losing. He said, run your sword through, through me, kill me. And the armor bearer refused to take his life. So Saul fell on his own sword and committed suicide. And after that, the armor bearer fell on his sword too and also committed suicide. That's how 1 Samuel 31 ended. That was the end of Saul's life. Remember that. That's important as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 1 here because we're going to find a different story about Saul's death. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, thankfully, this guy came from uh, the Israelite camp, not the, the Philistine camp. And you don't see it in the English as much, but it's more apparent in the Hebrew. There's a little play on words going on here. He says, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. This word escaped, in 1 Samuel, it was the same word that was constantly used to describe David, his near escapes from Saul trying to take his life. This guy, right off the bat, is trying to ingratiate himself to David. You've escaped from Saul. I just originally escaped from Saul's camp. Real subtle play on words here. Gives you an idea where this is going. David said to him, well, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, well, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Lots of body bags, lots of death, but most significantly Saul 
and his son Jonathan, the Jonathan that is your best friend, the Jonathan that you love, they are both dead. Now, this is heartbreaking news, terrible news to David. David knew that Saul was rejected as king. David knew that one day Saul would, would die because God had rejected him as king. And he even knew that he would likely die in battle. This was the news that he knew was probably coming. In fact, back in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 10, David said this. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish, which is exactly what happens. But David is not one of those people who just hears the news and accepts the news. <clears throat> He's one of those people who hears the news, then he starts to ask questions about the news. Tell me a little more. Anybody ever been like that when they hear the news? Yeah, Troy says definitely. <coughs> then David said to the man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, Well, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. This guy claims he was an eyewitness of Saul's actual death. Now, it's true that Saul did die on Mount Gilboa. We've, we've already seen that. But I want you to notice right here at the front, something sounds, should we say, a touch bit off in this story. Just by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Really? You happen to just wander in the middle of a war on the losing side? I don't know about you, but if I was in Ukraine right now, and the Russians were shooting at a building or shooting at a city, I would not wander into the building. I would not wander into the city just by chance. Something sounds a little off here, doesn't it? And when he looked behind him, he, he saw me and he called me and I answered, Oh, here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Well, here is where the story takes an unexpected turn. We already know how Saul died. First Samuel chapter 31 told us. Remember, he asked his armor bearer to kill him. Armor bearer refused because he wouldn't kill the king, so he committed suicide and fell on his sword. This guy has a different version of how Saul died. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thank you, sir. This guy has a different version of how Saul died, and what he's going to do is make himself the hero of the story. Imagine the shock when David hears that this guy claims to be an Amalekite. This guy doesn't know that David just finished chasing down the Amalekites, getting rid of the Amalekites because they had destroyed his city and taken their women and children. Not a good deal. Let me tell you a little bit about the Amalekites. The Amalekites and the Israelites, if you look through biblical history, have a long and rough uh, history together. Amalekites hated the Israelites. Amalekites hated the God of the Israelites, and they are always trying to undermine them. Interestingly, they're descendants of Esau, 
Uh, we've seen another descendant of Esau earlier in 1 Samuel. A guy's name was, he was an Edomite, not an Amalekite. It was Doeg. Remember Doeg in 1 Samuel? He was the one who tricked King Saul into allowing him to kill all the priests in Israel. Here we have another descendant of Esau who's now going to try to kick trick David and be deceptive towards David. But it doesn't turn out the way we would think it would go. In verse 9, And he said to me, Well, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So the Amalekite claims Saul was going to die, and so I just helped him out at his own request. I uh, finished him off for you. So right now we have two different accounts of how Saul died. 1 Samuel chapter 31, he died by suicide, falling on his own sword. 2 Samuel chapter 1, he died by the Amalekites' assisted suicide. Which one is right? And this is the point in your outline. How do we um, reconcile the two contradictory accounts of Saul's death from 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1? You need to know that a number of the liberal commentators would point out, hey, this is just more evidence that the Bible contradicts itself, that the Bible uh, doesn't really know how to get its stories right, and things are wrong in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you, that's just baloney. It doesn't make any sense. Here's why. I put down a number of points for you in your outline. Remember, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. This is not a mistake. The author put these two different accounts side by side for on purpose. There's a reason for this. And anybody who was reading him would go right from the, the end of 1 Samuel to the beginning of 2 Samuel because they were one book. Second thing you need to know. If you have, must choose between trusting the author's account of Saul's death in 1 Samuel 31 or the account of an evil Amalekite, the enemy of God's people in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it really shouldn't be hard to decide which one is actually true, right? The author told us how he died. Number three, the Amalekites' account has all the markings of a lie. It's missing important details. Remember I told you that? Oh, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa in the middle of a war. Like I was just wandering around and I ended up there. When you're missing details, it's because you're making things up. Number four, the Amalekites' account claims King Saul was alone dying on the mountain. That doesn't seem probable when an entire army defended the king on the mountain. Do you really think he'd be alone, needing the Amalekites' help to get rid of his life? Doesn't make any sense. Number five, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10, David tells us the Amalekite was looking for a reward. He twisted the story to make himself the hero of the story. We can see this, 2 Samuel 4, 10. 
David says, And when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Let me tell you what I think actually happened. We know from 1 Samuel chapter 31 that it says the Philistines did not return to strip the dead until the next day. After the battle was over, my guess is the Amalekite was going among the dead taking stuff before the Philistines arrived. He runs across Saul, decides to grab the crown and the armlet and head to David, thinking he's going to get a reward for bringing these to David and helping him to become the next king. And he decides he's making up a story how Saul died, and he was the one who did it, who put Saul to death, thinking he's going to be the new hero in town. That is what this guy is thinking. Now, he's thinking if he can twist the truth and bend the truth, he'll get ahead in life a little bit. Now, we don't like when somebody does that, do we? Not fair, not good. But isn't it true that we do the same thing? Don't we often twist the truth, bend the truth a little bit to make ourselves the hero of our story? Anybody ever found yourself doing that? I think all of us finds ourselves doing that from time to time. Now we have to ask ourselves the question I began with. Does crime pay? Will this Amalekites, little twisting of the story, trying to make himself the hero of the story, the one who put Saul out of his, Saul to death, will it actually work out in his favor? Uh, let's find out. And the answer for the next point is crime doesn't pay. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Wait a minute. That's not the response this Amalekite expected. He expected them to be cheering. He expected all of a sudden for them to be celebrating. King Saul is finally dead and the crown and the armlet of the king are now in David's hands. We've got it. That's what the Amalekite expected. But that's not what happened. Now, you would think that's what would happen. I mean, remember Saul over a dozen times had tried to kill David, as I mentioned earlier. You would think David would be happy that finally his enemy is bumped off. Finally, he's the one who has the, king, the crown and the kingdom. But that's not the way David responded. David responded by viewing Saul's death and Jonathan's death as a great tragedy to be mourned, not a victory to be celebrated. You know, the, God's the same way. I don't know if you realize this. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone says this in Ezekiel 18:32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God so turn and live 
God doesn't take pleasure in anyone's death. What he takes pleasure in is their repentance. Isn't that true? That is something to be celebrated. And the same should be true for us. That we don't take pleasure in the death of anyone, even in the death of our enemies. What we want to celebrate is not their death. We want to celebrate their repentance. Now, as I said, David was, or Saul hated David. And all the evil that Saul did to David, you know where it came from? It came from the wickedness of Saul's own heart. It came from the jealousy in Saul's own heart. But if you've been with us in 1 Samuel, you'll know that David refused to return that hatred back to Saul. David refused to want to get revenge on Saul. This refusal to get revenge, it came from really righteousness and godliness in his, David's heart. David didn't get revenge on Saul, and David didn't act like Saul. The life of both men came out of the state of their hearts. Saul's evil and death desires for David came out of his wickedness, where David's um, desire for righteousness would not return things that way. So all day, David and his men grieved at the death of Saul. But then at the end of the day, we find David's thought about this for a little bit more. And look what happens. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, Well, I'm a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. This may sound like the same question David asked earlier, Where do you come from? It looks the same in English. It's a little different in Hebrew because the emphasis in Hebrew is put on the word you. It's, wait a minute, where do you come from? I want to know more about you. And this Amalekite reveals something. He doesn't just say he's an Amalekite, but he's the son of a sojourner. A sojourner was somebody who lived in Israel, sort of like a, a, an illegal alien, if you want to call it, in the nation of Israel. They were given some rights, they were given some protections, but they were expected to know the law of the land and to obey the law of the land. It's no different. You may have an illegal alien in the United States, but they have to stop for red lights, right? Stop for stop signs, and if you don't do those things, you're guilty. This guy knew the law of Israel, and he was expected to obey the law of Israel. And he ignored a really big one, which was called respect for the king, the king that God put in charge and only God had the right to take out of the kingdom. David said to him, well, remember he knows that he's been a local. He knows the law of the land. How is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Yes, Saul was corrupt. Yes, Saul was wounded. Yes, Saul was dying. But you have no right to take his life prematurely. And David called one of his young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For with your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. 
Now at this point, I want to stop and just pull out a few lessons that had been surfacing in my mind when I was studying this. What lessons can we learn? Well, number one, we have to respect the office even if we struggle to respect the man in the office. Did you see that in there? You may struggle to respect Saul, but Saul is the king. You need to respect him. Now that's something we can struggle with in our own society, isn't it? We have to respect the office, even if we struggle to respect the man in the office. There's nobody has a right to try and kill the king. Second thing, euthanasia is wrong. If someone is dying, it is murder to take their life prematurely. David sees this Amalekite taking Saul's life prematurely as an act of murder against the king. Now in our society, when people get cancer or people are sick, it's becoming more acceptable and more fashionable uh, to do mercy killing, help someone in their dying process. The Bible is very clear that helping somebody die is an act of murder. Now, when somebody's uh, dying of cancer, are we allowed to give them drugs to help them um, with the pain and all those things? Of course. But God is the one who's in charge of the day of our birth. And he is also the one in charge of the day of our death, right? So we respect human life. We don't take it. Number three, I think, is in here. It's not our job to get revenge. We leave that in the hand of God. Think of all the things Saul had done to David. Well over a dozen attempts on David's life in 1 Samuel. Yet David saw no right to get revenge, no right to get even. David, you'll remember in 1 Samuel, had multiple times he could do it. Remember that time he caught David on the potty break in the cave? No, that's not my job to take his life. Nope, not my job to get revenge. He left that in God's hands. And I think this is super instructive because this whole theme of not being taking revenge but leaving revenge in God's hand comes right across into the New Testament. Remember this in Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right now in your life, do you feel like a David with a Saul in your world? Somebody who's constantly hunting you down? Somebody who's constantly being mean to you? Somebody who's constantly doing aggressive and hurtful things to you? And in your mind, you're like, you know, it's about time I get even and put them in their place. Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. Don't become like them. A righteous heart will do righteous things. An evil heart will do evil things. Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, Jesus says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Go out of your way to do good to your enemies. Proverbs 17, verse 5. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. 
when we celebrate the suffering of other people, even the suffering of our enemies, that's sin. Remember what we celebrate? We celebrate repentance. We don't celebrate other people's suffering. Uh, number four, I should mention this one fairly quickly. How we respond when we hear about others' suffering really reveals the truth of our own hearts. Isn't that true? When you hear about somebody's suffering, if all of a sudden you celebrate and leap for joy, it just, realize, it just reveals the wickedness of our own heart. Where David, he heard about the death of Saul and Jonathan, he instantly went into mourning because he didn't wish evil on them at all. So here's the answer. When we have a righteous king, crime, deception, getting even, it never pays, it doesn't pay. Now, David is not the perfect king. We know that. As we get into 2 Samuel, he's going to take a nosedive and make a bunch of mistakes, a bunch of sin. But at least right now at the beginning, he is a righteous king, though not a perfect king. The good news is that we have a king who is a righteous king, but he hasn't failed, and he'll never fail. He's known as the son of David. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, my friends, is large and in charge in this world. And when Jesus is in charge, you need to realize no matter what it may look like, crime will never, ever pay. What always pays is righteousness. What always pays is kindness. What always pays is good in the kingdom of God. Lying, deceptions, getting even, and revenge will never pay because Jesus is the one who's in charge. Now, what about those times where we failed? What about those times where we acted like revenge is the right thing to do? And we weren't always honest with our words. Jesus is more than just a righteous king. Jesus is also the one who forgives those who repent and call out to him. Jesus is also the one who gives us mercy when we seek it. Jesus is also the one who heals the brokenhearted. But he never, 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 will reward evil, never will reward lying, never will reward revenge, because crime in the kingdom of God doesn't pay. Now, the last part uh, of this chapter, it's David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. If you ever wondered, you know, is it really true that David was really brokenhearted at Saul's death and at Jonathan's death? This should put that to bed. We know David was a songwriter. He wrote a number of the Psalms, not all the Psalms, but about half of them he wrote. And he wrote this song that it is to be sung to the people in Israel. In fact, you'll see in a moment, he commanded everyone in Israel to learn it so they would not forget about Saul and Jonathan and how good God had been to them through Saul and Jonathan. And we're going to read through it rather quickly, but there is something I want to point out that I thought was a noteworthy point of application. This is not a balanced biography that uh, David's about to give us in this song. What he focuses on when the death of Saul and Jonathan is the good that has been lost. Whenever you are in a situation where you're mourning someone's passing, and maybe they are passing because they've done an evil thing, they've, they've made some really poor choices, it's not a time for a balanced biography, folks. It's a time to remember the good that has been lost when they died. 
and focused on the good things that they had done and remembering that. So that's the first bullet point. When someone dies, we remember the good that was lost. Let's go ahead and read this. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Everybody was to learn this song so they wouldn't forget Saul and Jonathan. And it was also written in a book of, called Jashar, which, by the way, simply means in Hebrew, the book of the righteous. It's not a biblical book. It was just kept in this book so people would not forget it. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places. How the mighty have fallen. Saul and Jonathan were the glory of Israel. They were the mighty men of Israel. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. But he's going back in his mind, he's remembering of how the the Israelite women rejoiced when he came back after killing Goliath early in his career. Remember they all sung, David is, Saul has killed his thousand, David has killed his ten thousand, everybody celebrated. He pictures that same thing happening now among the Philistines, the women celebrating in the streets. And he gives these two towns, Gath and Eshkelon, and the reason he gives them is because they are on opposite sides of Philistine territory. It's like saying, may no one celebrate from Los Angeles to New York. You see how it, it's just meant to be an encompassing picture. May no one be celebrating Saul's death. It's a terrible tragedy. And then he also says, may the Mount Gilboa where Saul and Jonathan died, may it become a desolate place. May this... The, the location continually be a place of grieving, like a war memorial, so people don't forget the significance of the people who died there. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. They were mighty warriors, and they did great good for the nation. Remember, Saul was the one who saved the Israelites from Nahash the Ammonite back in 1 Samuel, the guy who was gouging everybody's right eye out and destroying the land. Jonathan was the guy who saved the Israelites in the battle of Michmash. Remember when he climbed that scale, that wall, that cliff, and he surprised attacked them with him and his armor bearer? Mighty warriors. God was so good to the nation through them. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, this is an amazing one. Remember, Saul twice tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. But Jonathan stayed loyal to his father in spite of that, all the way to the end. And as we saw, Jonathan even died defending his father. That's loyalty. That's character. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. During the period of the judges, Israel was in poverty. But when Saul became to rulership, they actually experienced a great period of prosperity. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. 
Now remember that Saul and Jonathan were the, the best of friends. Then he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now all of a sudden, you get to this last verse where a lot of the more liberal commentators go sort of crazy. Oh, look, Saul, and, or David and Jonathan, rather, they were in a homosexual relationship. And David says Jonathan was a better lover than a woman. No, no, not at all. You need to remember this is not describing a homosexual relationship. Number one, the words pleasant and love in the Hebrew are used to describe close friendship. They are not Hebrew words to describe a sexual relationship. That's a different word. Don't try to read your modern culture into the text. Number two, David describes Jonathan's loyal love to him as greater than a wife's loyal love to, for her husband. This describes loyalty in a relationship. It's not talking about the sexual love in a relationship. Men, if you go home and you tell your wife at the dinner table about somebody who's being irritable to you at work and who's trying to make your life difficult at work, what does your wife do? She goes to mama bear mode, doesn't she? Because she's like your loyal protector. This is what David is saying Jonathan was like to him. Loyal, faithful protector. Number three, it would make no sense to see homosexuality celebrated by Israel's righteous king while it's described as a sin deserving the death penalty under God's law. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a man, as with the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is on them. So why would it be celebrated by the righteous king if it's the death penalty and the law that they live under? Makes no sense. Then lastly is this, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. So what do we want to remember? Number one, we want to learn from the Amalekites. Crime doesn't pay when you have a righteous king in charge. And we do. His name is Jesus. Number two, we can learn from David's lament. You always grieve the good that is lost when someone dies. You don't put out a balanced biography and talking about all their faults. You put out, remember the good that they have done that you've lost. And number three, it's not our job to get revenge, is it? We leave that in God's hands. Just as God took care of Saul, that's what we know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this first chapter. A lot of text to cover, a lot of things. I pray that we would remember that crime doesn't pay when our righteous king, Jesus, is in charge. You always will reward righteousness. We don't have to get revenge and get even and defend ourselves. You have promised to take care of our enemies. <laughs> that may mean a long time of difficulty and suffering. It was a long time of difficulty and suffering for David when Saul chased him. But you are large and in charge, and we can trust you. And may we be people. Whenever there is a, a Christian leader who fails, or a Christian leader who dies, or goes off the track, or whatever it may be, may we be people who really just mourn the good that was lost. We ask this in Christ's precious name.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.